Good morning, Outlook family. It's good to see everyone this morning, whether you're with me here in the room or you're joining us online. I'm really glad we're together, and I'm looking forward to jumping in to God's Word. Before I do, I just want to say a quick thank you to Jason Wolfgang, who led us in worship this morning, and Chris Hancock, two members of our worship team who have stepped up to run point for our worship teams as we are now beginning this journey of prayerfully searching for our next worship arts minister. So I just want to express my appreciation to Jason and to Chris and to all those on our worship team who lead us so beautifully in worship every Sunday, just as they did today. Amen? Yeah, we can show them our appreciation for sure. Well, as Kate mentioned in our video, we are starting a new series this morning, looking at each of the eight opening statements of what, Jesus, of what is called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, that sermon is believed to have been delivered here. This is a, a photo taken from what's called the Mount of the Beatitudes, and it's the, this scene is pictured right here. I also got to visit that very spot uh, several years ago. It was in the fall, not in the spring, so my pictures aren't nearly as pretty as that picture right there. But it is a beautiful place, and it's easy to picture um, as you're on that hilltop, crowds of people uh, cascading down the hillside and listening uh, to Jesus speak from the top of that mount. It's just a great and gorgeous place to be. And it's from this very place that Jesus shared what is really the cornerstone of his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he began this great discourse with a series of pronouncements about who really experiences life as he gives it, who is truly blessed. Now, these have been called the Beatitudes. You might have picked that up along the way. I just referred to that place. It's called the Mount of the Beatitudes because the first word in the original language of the Greek is makarios, but in the Latin, the first word is beatus, this beginning word blessed that we see in all eight of these statements, beatus, meaning blessed, happy, joyful, hopeful, all of those kind of combined. And it's from that Latin word that then comes that word beatitude. So that's how we get to that. And so to get things started, I am happy to say that here to read for us the first beatitude from various biblical translations is Lauren Hewlett, a sophomore at New Palestine High School. So give it up for Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God blesses those people who depend only on him. They belong to the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. How happy are the humble-minded, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. What happiness comes to you when you feel your spiritual poverty, for yours is the realm of heaven's kingdom. God makes happy those who know that they need him. The kingdom of heaven is for them. Awesome. Thanks, Lauren, very much. 
I think uh, different translations of the scriptures can sometimes shed light on a phrase or a verse to help us understand what it means. I really like that last one. God makes happy those who know that they need him. That's who I want to be. I bet you do too. Someone who knows just how much we need God. Amen? Now, I mentioned the first word in this and every one of the Beatitudes is the word makarios. And it's worth a minute or two to get a good grasp of its meaning, especially since Jesus repeats it at the beginning of every single one of these. It's actually used 50 times in the New Testament, almost always describing the joyful state of hopeful participation in God's life and action. It's a super positive word. And the Hebrew equivalent in our Old Testament speaks to God's breaking in to dire situations with his peace, his justice, his joy to reverse the prospects of his people. So it's, it's a jubilant word. It's, it's a word that you can't help but want to say with an exclamation mark at the end of it. It's a good word that any of us would want to have as an accurate descriptor of our lives. It doesn't mean happy as in just upbeat, and it doesn't mean hashtag blessed, right? As in merely favorable or preferred circumstances. Look at me, I'm so blessed. It actually is a deep and robust word. It means to be truly joyful and fulfilled thanks to God. Now, of course, the biblical writers weren't the only ones who wrote things in Greek, right? We, we know there's all kinds of literature that was written in Greek, including pagan Greek literature of the era. And when this word was used there, it would speak to the highest stage of happiness and well-being, such as the gods enjoy. And so when Jesus says that you are happy or blessed, he's talking about people who are in his kingdom, the truly fortunate. They actually well off. Theirs is the thrill of divine bliss. That's actually a pretty good word for what this is trying to convey. Divine bliss and godly gladness. So it's a good word. It's, what, it's the word Jesus chooses to begin each of these eight statements at the beginning of his most powerful and complete sermon. It's also important to understand what Jesus is and isn't saying when he makes these pronouncements of these blessings to the poor in spirit, or those who mourn, or the meek, or those craving righteousness, or the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. We'll dig into each of, each of those uh, um, in each Sunday coming up over the next several weeks. Jesus is not saying that God loves these people more, but he is saying that such people will be the ones who experience his love, who are open to that love. These are not requirements for some kind of reward that we must strive to attain. They are a description of reality, of the character of person who will receive what God has to give. So Jesus, in these pronouncements, he's saying these are good and even happy things to be. In one sense, he's saying, congratulations, Yes, you are included in life with God. You're not earning it by having these virtues. You are opening that life through such virtues. God has come to deliver us, is Jesus' constant refrain. These are the people who will welcome him when he does, as he does. And so let's dive into the first of these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, this beatitude strikes the key with which the others will harmonize, for sure. And so right out the gate, it begs the question, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now, the word for poor means what we would think it means. It means being without resources, without influence, without prestige. The poor are those with nothing. And in Jesus' kingdom, they are of a special status, those about whom he seems most concerned. Remember when he started his ministry by standing in the synagogue of his hometown and reading these words from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he read, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news to the poor is what Jesus is all about. And he reiterates this in the opening line of this great teaching. Again, this is a recurring theme throughout Jesus' teaching and the scriptures. In Luke 14, Jesus advises, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Jesus is always looking out for the marginalized, for those who are pushed aside, for those who are disregarded and devalued, right? We talked a couple months ago about this one moment in Luke 21. Jesus is at the temple. People are giving their offerings. Someone comes in, drops a, all kinds of coin into the offering uh, box, but then this poor widow comes and drops just two small copper coins, two pennies. Truly, I tell you, he said, the poor widow has put in more than all the others. Jesus has always got an eye for what, it, what true wealth really looks like. He's always trying to help us redefine that to run counter to how this world would define what wealth and power look like. So many passages make it clear. God is concerned for the poor and that those who ignore or abuse the poor will not go unpunished. At one point, he tells a parable in Luke 16 about a rich man and a beggar who basically hung out and lived at this rich man's gate. He says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And what we see in the story is that the topic of a conversation in the afterlife is how the rich man treated the beggar. The rich man found himself suffering from separation from God. And the conversation is pointing out the fact that the rich man avoided the beggar, ignored the beggar, never considered him a child of God worthy of his attention or of blessing. He abided by the world's categories, that this guy must be rejected by God. Look at the state he's in. And he was called to account for that. Proverbs 21, way back in the Old Testament, says, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. So in Jesus' very first words of his Beatitudes, which are the first words of his great sermon, he is pointing out this very thing. He's saying, I hear the cry of the poor. I hear the need. I'm near those who need me most. Jesus says the poor are blessed. That this world would say you have every reason to be sad. He says you have reason to be happy. And by adding the words in spirit... He is describing now an attitude and a posture we all can have, regardless of the largeness or the smallness of our financial accounts. One who is poor in spirit humbly embraces the fact that seeking power and wealth is not what we are to be about, not as his followers, that the happiness they promise is a mirage, that true power and wealth have nothing to do with what this world pursues or how this world defines that. 
He is recognizing the fact that the po- those who are poor in spirit are embracing this idea that they need God desperately, that they are without resource in this regard. People who are poor in spirit will be the ones who are embracing our utter helplessness apart from God and thus utterly um, relying on the help that only God provides. It's a good state to be in, he's saying. It's a good thing. On our own, we are spiritually poor. But in Christ's way of life, this is a good thing. Because we're, even though we're empty-handed, it also means we're open-handed, right? We're waiting and ready to receive. We're poor in spirit. We're dependent on him and then devoted to him. Knowing, always remembering that we're helpless except for the great help of our great God. Amen? So Jesus is saying, blessed it is. It's a good and happy thing to be humble, to be aware of your own spiritual poverty. Now, humility is not focusing on being worthless. In Jesus' kingdom, it actually turns that. Humility is celebrating the fact that God found me worth loving. That, yes, apart from him, I am nothing. That keeps us humble. But now, thank God, I'm not apart from him. Amen? Now, the opposite of being poor in spirit is prideful. Being prideful and seeking power to be well-resourced and well-regarded all on our own. Now, this can be a spiritual challenge. Remember when Jesus turned to his disciples in Matthew 19, truly I tell you how hard it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Saying there's a difficulty there, not because the dollars themselves are a problem, it's what the dollars do to us, right? What the the effect that they can have on us. Look at me, I must be pretty, I must be one of God's favorites. Look how much I'm richly blessed. And then we begin to see others through that lens. We inflate ourselves. We look down on others. Any of us, if we're honest as human beings, will face that very temptation if we have any kind of wealth at all. And so Jesus uh, constantly says throughout his teaching, he's constantly warning us, being rich is not the problem, but being rich is a dangerous thing, spiritually speaking, because it's so easy to then become reliant on yourself. It is for all of us, right? And that's the opposite of being poor in spirit. Now I'm rich in spirit. Now I think I've got it all together. In fact, self-reliance becomes the easiest thing I can do. I don't need God. I have all the money that I need. I can supply all that I want. I don't have to think about God's will because I can execute my will quite easily through all the resources that I have. And so it has this insidious way of creeping into our heart. Again, it's not that being rich is the problem if you happen to find yourself in that category. It's what those riches can do to us. Riches of all kinds. Richness in power and influence. Richness in possessions and connections. And even the pursuit of them, even if we never get too much of it, those can easily become pride. But the poor have lessons to teach us. Or maybe we even can embrace some of that for ourselves. The poor and those who escape the allure of riches and power remain humble. Our poverty of spirit, our admission of our lack of spiritual credentials reminds us to then be compassionate and empathetic to others and aware of our own need for God. I do not have it all together. I I cannot supply 
what I need when it comes to eternal life. I am devoid of those resources apart from what my Father in heaven provides. Amen? That is what it means to be poor in spirit. As we do, we find ourselves living in Christ's way, in God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus puts it here. The kingdom of heaven is, as one of my favorite authors puts it, wherever what God wants done is done. I would add to that, the kingdom of heaven, so to speak, is where God is welcome and given room to move and to rule in my life, that I'm experiencing the kingdom of heaven to the degree that I invite him to do that very thing, which is exactly what being poor in spirit means. It means recognizing I need God. I am no good without him. And then when that happens, we can begin to look around at our lives and say, this is heaven. I don't mean circumstantially. I don't mean everything's going perfectly. I mean, I'm communing with the God who made me and loves me. I'm seeking his will. I'm experiencing his love. This is a heavenly place to be. This is a good place to live, a good space that I have made to allow God to be the Lord of my life. In other words, in spiritual humility, we will find ourselves experiencing God's love and living more and more according to his will. We are becoming the kind of people who more and more naturally pray as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done, right? On earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven comes to those, belongs to those who are poor in spirit. The apostle Paul certainly experienced this and at one point in a letter, he describes it this way. We are sorrowful, meaning we're not always happy, chirpy, shiny people, right? We're very aware of the the trials and tragedies of life on this earth. We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. This is the paradox of spiritual poverty. It actually brings great riches. Life in this kingdom brings detachment from the world, and its thoughts, and all its things, and instead fosters attachment to God and his will and his ways. The poor in spirit renounce doing life on their own terms and receive life as God gives it. As a result, they trust evermore in him. God's kingdom redefines what constitutes wealth and power and real treasure. That's why Jesus says just a little later in this same sermon, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven. In other words, that which is most important to you should be that which cannot be touched or destroyed here on earth. It's the spiritual realities of life, the true wealth that God gives us in a relationship with him where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So you can be, let's all be honest about this, you can be financially poor and spiritually prideful. And you can be financially well off and poor in spirit, as Jesus describes. But often, and this is the recurring warning that I mentioned earlier, often this pride or this humility, the one we're trying to reject and the other we want to embrace, the level of that in us is revealed by how we interact with the power and riches of this world. 
This ethic carried itself heartily into the early church. It seems clear that our beatitude today stuck with the Apostle James. At one point in his letter, uh, he reprimands a group of Christians, talking about their worship gathering. He says, hey, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and with expensive jewelry, or we might say pulls up in a really nice car, right? And another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. He says, if you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, "Mm, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. He says, doesn't this discrimination show your judgments are guided by evil motives? He calls them on this. How we react to what the world defines as rich or successful or worthwhile, how we treat others according to that measure, reveals something about us. Not what we say, but how we react and how we treat others. He's saying, you've forgotten who you are and what you're all about. These would not be the actions of people poor in spirit. And then he seems, check this, to refer to and almost quote our beatitude this morning. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? In other words, it's exactly when we are without material resources that we are most easily dependent upon God. And that our riches can indeed be that handicap that sometimes keeps us from that necessary dependence. Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppose you, who oppress you and drag you in the court? Aren't they the ones who slander, the, slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? He's saying, why would you buy into the idea that the rich deserve special treatment or admiration? He says, don't fall for it. This is an important thing for all of us. How does the church answer in our society today? Who is really blessed? Who's truly blessed? Who is living, who is truly well off and living the good life as God would define it? To what do we aspire? Who sets our example? How do you and I as Christians answer that? One last thought before we wrap up. At the time of Jesus, people definitely measured the quality of blessing and favor from God by whether you were powerful, rich, healthy, respected, educated. This is, the vow, this is the measure they used against each other. And there's a theme throughout these Beatitudes that we'll look at over February and March, and really all of Jesus' teaching. It is a reversal of what's normal, a flipping of the standard way of doing things and thinking about ourselves and others and God. It's subversive, it's revolutionary, and it's awesome. The Beatitudes are something that by this point, uh, you and I might be familiar enough with them. You know, Grandma crocheted them on, or, or needle-pointed them, and it was hanging on the wall, or you see it on a greeting card, or, or whatever. But we cannot lose the raw edge of what these Beatitudes sounded like when they first were delivered by our Lord. And this is what Jesus constantly did, and he's doing it all throughout these Beatitudes. With one eye on the religious leaders and the power brokers, Jesus consistently then would turn to the crowds, one eye on those guys, but he turns to the crowds. Often, he turns to the so-called worst of those in those crowds. 
And then he says something that was totally revolutionary. In fact, it eventually sent him to a cross. The kingdom is theirs. The kingdom is theirs. Jesus is directly including the excluded. The poor, the disenfranchised, the meek, the persecuted, on and on and on. These people grew up hearing, you're outside the circle of blessing. You're missing the target. Jesus says you are the target. And God delights to share his life with you. In fact, he draws the circle around you because he loves you and is with you and is for you. Friends, are you sick of the world and where it's going? Do you see injustices and abuses disregarded? Does the callousness of those who have and the increasing marginalization of those who have not grieve your heart? When people who claim Christ define power as winning a culture war and define favor as material wealth, do you want to weep or pound the table? I can't help but read the words and read about the works of Jesus and not feel you're in good company. He was continually saying, in his kingdom, the first will be last, and the last first. That whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. That those the world shoves to the bottom end up coming out on top. That humility is the path to true greatness. Jesus is a rebel, make no mistake. In his way, he is now offering life in God, available to anyone. And in the Beatitudes, he is saying, this is what that looks like, no matter your story and whatever your struggle. Let me end by reading the Amplified Bible's translation of these words, which I think is really helpful and illuminating. Blessed, spiritually prosperous, happy to be admired, are the poor in spirit, those devoid of spiritual arrogance. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, both now and forevermore. Let's pray about that. Lord, we want these words to be true of us. This kind of blessing you pronounced sounds great. It really just sounds like something we would love to all have be true of our own lives. And so, Lord, as John the Baptist once said, uh, you must become greater and we must become less. Get us out of our own way, Lord, as best as you possibly can. And we'll do our best to cooperate with you in that. That we would be more open to you, more receptive of you, more aware of our own spiritual poverty, more easily, more, uh, able to more easily admit how we don't have it all figured out. And that by ourselves, we aren't much of anything, but that you love us and that with you, we can be so many wonderful things. God, I pray your blessing uh, on this word, plant it deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.